Welcome to another episode of the Arena Craft Podcast, a show dedicated exclusively to Magic the Gathering Arena. My name is Arjuna, I'm one of your hosts. I'm joined today by not one, but two other hosts as we explore another guest feature on this show. So, of course, Covert Go Blue, regular partner in crime, is present on the podcast. How are you doing, CGB? Hey, I am super excited to go on, on, and on about all the amazingness of the new constructed format. <laughs> oh, wait, hold on. That's not what this says. This says this says we have a limited mastermind in our midst. We do indeed. And uh, so I'm excited to welcome a, a special guest to the show, someone whose content I've been following for a long time. I'm sure if you A, play Arena, and B, like Limited, you probably are already familiar with this particular character. He is the founder and master educator at Arena's Elite Limited Dueling Academy. He's also just consistently a low-numbered mythic gamer and streamer, and I would say like a, a real free thinker in the world of draft. I think that's part of your trademark. So anyway, without further ado, here is Deathsy joining us from Korea. How are you doing, Deathsy? Hey, thanks guys for having me. I am doing fantastic. It's uh, about 8 a.m. here. I like your introduction for me that I'm a free thinker. I think that most people would probably consider me more along the lines of uh, a sociopath, probably like <laughs> a magic sociopath. Maybe more so than a free thinker. I think that the Venn diagrams often overlap with those two concepts. Mm. I would also think that your opponents on Arena might think of you as a sociopath. I don't know, man. <laughs> if there's one thing that I feel like stands out from your limited play, you're frequently killing people on turn 20 at like two life. You know what I mean? <laughs> That's true. <laughs> This is just like how Death Sea games go so often, uh, which makes for really exciting content. So there's a lot that we could dive into here today. I think it's going to be a little bit difficult to keep it to a focused hour of discussion. But basically, I'm going to kick off with just like some general life questions for you. And then um, we'll dive a little bit more into the Zendikar Rising limited format, which I've been having a lot of fun with, and I feel like you've been enjoying it a lot too. And... Uh, Covert Go Blue can periodically throw paper airplanes at us or whatever. Hi, hi, hi. <laughs> While well, having this discussion. <laughs> That's what I'm here for, yeah. So, okay, Deathsea, general life questions, first of all. So, you've been playing Magic for a long time, yeah? Yeah, I've been playing probably around, as, around Innistrad, so... I know for a lot of, you know, for a lot of the Magic players, <laughs> cute, Innistrad. I was there back when uh, Magic the Gathering was uh, printed on freaking clay tablets or something like that. So it, it's it been a long time, but it hasn't been that long, I suppose. But maybe about uh, somewhere like eight to ten years with some um, gaps in between there. And when did you figure out that Limited was your true calling in Magic? It was almost it was almost initially when I first started playing. So I start I started playing and uh, my brothers and their friends had just like a bunch of like junk commons and uncommons lying around. And um, 
my very first interaction with magic was like staying up for 50 hours straight, just building decks. <laughs> I was like, I was like, at first, you know, I was like, huh, this nerdy card game. I don't want to look at this card game. This is like the game that the smelly kids played in uh, the library back in school, you know, and uh, my brothers and their friend introduced me to it. And immediately, like immediately I was hooked. And for 50 hours straight, I was just building random decks. Yeah. <laughs> So, I was, the, so, so yeah. the deck building really stood out to you as an exciting part of it. I, I can see why that translates over to Limited pretty well. I mean, I would say that like I was addicted to magic. And I obviously at that point, I didn't know really what formats existed in magic. I didn't really know how people played magic, how people interacted with it. But I was drawn immediately to kind of like the simplicity yet complexity of the game. Soon after that, I started going to like local game shops and stuff like that. And I personally think that limited is the easiest way for anyone to get into magic. You don't have to have any cards. You just sit down at a table. Once you learn how to draft, you can build your deck and then you can just play with other people. You just don't need anything at all. So that's kind of how I started Back in those days, you know, like back in my day, if you were a limited player, you're also a constructed player. Like for the vast majority of people cannot just play draft all the time like you can now on either Magic Online or Magic Arena. So, of course, I played a lot of constructed. I, as you can imagine, uh, I played decks that like were just either five color decks or just like random junky but expensive decks with all like you know planeswalkers and uh, and mythic rares and stuff like that. So the more I played constructed, the more I realized that I was just there for the limited. Honestly, <laughs> like the constructed was just was just the aftermath for me. That's an interesting way of of looking at it. After playing Magic myself for a lot of my life, I have discovered that one of the things that I like the most about Limited is that I feel like from start to finish, it's a puzzle. It's mm. like from the moment you start sitting down picking cards, you're already figuring something out. So, and then when you get to the gameplay, you're figuring out how to make this pile of crappy cards you've thrown together into a deck that can actually manage to have some kind of a cogent game plan. To me, it, it seems like you are really, like you really enjoy the puzzle of it from start to finish. Would you say that that's correct? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. To me, drafting has this almost like, this almost like battle royale or this sort of Hunger Games uh, feeling to it where everyone comes in with nothing but like a backpack and like maybe a hunting knife or something like that, you know? And it's like last man or woman is uh, standing wins. And that's all you came in with. Like everyone's sitting at the table with the same exact uh, stipulations, right? The same exact $15 for your draft packs instead of uh, maybe like the, maybe anywhere from like 200 to like $500 for your constructed deck. And that's all, that's all you've got. Just the, whatever's on your back and your brain. 
So I think that there's something kind of romantic about it <laughs> that everyone starts from that initial point and uh, you see who's still standing at the end. So I, one of the things I've noticed about your play in particular is that I feel like no cards are off the table for you, um, mm. which I think really feeds into that kind of battle royale approach. Like I think most people when they go into limited, they're like building a tier list they quickly come up with like 30% of the set, which is just unplayable to them. Sure. I never pick that card. I don't like, I forget that card even exists. Occasionally my opponents resolve it against me and I'm like, oh, that's cute. <laughs> but I, one thing I've noticed about you is I feel like you're like, is this a three Cliffhaven kite sail deck? Maybe, <laughs> you know, maybe sure. like what, sure. like let's not discount that possibility. So that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about just from a broad level perspective. How do you go about thinking about that? How do you get from this card's really crummy most of the time mm. to, wow, this is a cool card. I'm going to throw this in my deck. Yeah, I think that's a great question. So kind of going back to the sort of survival analogy is that if you think about the way that maybe like MacGyver thinks, right? Like MacGyver doesn't, MacGyver isn't locked in a room and he doesn't go like, okay, well, uh, ropes are good. Uh, knives are good. Uh, vases suck. And uh, I don't know, like he doesn't have the ego, you know, like he, like he doesn't judge the objects in the room, the things that he has at his disposal as something that's good or bad. He thinks about how to use it, right? He's like, okay, well, what does this do? What can I do with this? Realistically, how do these, these two things combine together? Whereas maybe like you're starting with, I don't know, like maybe you're starting with like a water bottle and uh, like a towel, you know, and then maybe you can combine these two things to create like, I don't know, some sort of uh, some sort of contraption, whereas the two initial items really didn't do anything at all. So to me, that's kind of the way that I approach uh, magic and drafting in general is that you kind of have to give up that ego where it's like, I know that magic players want to think that cards are good and cards are bad. When realistically, like you, what you're trying to do is to find when a card is good and when a card is bad, right? So if, try, try to figure out that puzzle and not necessarily be too caught up on being right or wrong about a card evaluation. I really love that. It kind of reminds me of your approach to deck building CGB, right? Because I mean, a lot of what you do is just going through the whole card pool every day and trying to figure out what's another interesting archetype to explore and construct it. Like, would you say that's how you approach it? I think so. And I understand how a lot of people get to the place that they do on card verdicts because we need shortcuts because there's so much going on and there's so much thinking to do in just about every aspect of magic that creating shortcuts of which cards are good and which cards are bad mean that we don't have to think as much and it is a very thought intensive game but the trick is to always be willing to retrace your steps uh, because yeah if if i got obsessed with which cards were great for the decks that i build for each different day they'd all look the same whereas <laughs> building around yeah building around different cards takes you in different paths and 
I don't know. I don't know how, as a content creator, one of the things that I'm constantly faced with is comments that it feels like one by one people are trying to direct me to so-and-so like a deck that's already good. A deck list <laughs> that's already good. You know, that already exists, right? Mm. Like I, I start out brewing uh, like black, white clerics and they're trying to turn it into red, black mid range, one card at a time. You know, like that's what Twitch chat does. <laughs> And you almost have to, you, you have to stay on target. You know, you have to Luke Skywalker this thing and you have to, you, you have to be like, no, we're, we think that this is the thesis that this card is good in this situation. This is why I think we can create these circumstances. So we're going to focus on this interaction, not this, like, not the other place that everybody is used to going, if that makes sense. What I love about this approach to magic, and I think one of the reasons I'm excited to talk about this, as opposed to some of the more specific things we could get into right now, is that I think one, the, the former approach that you were talking about, CGB, let's turn this into a known good deck, is that's the approach to like winning my next game of magic. I think there's a lot mm -hmm. of magic players who are like, I hate losing, I want to win my next 10 games of magic and feel good about myself. And I think that's something that you guys are both getting at here is that when you open your mind to the possibility of playing cards you're not used to playing, you're just working on getting better at magic. You're working on your, your base skill set and you're leveling up some of your kind of unglamorous numbers. You know, it's like everyone wants to get their warrior's strength up to 99 or whatever, but you're like working on your charisma, you're working on your ingenuity, you're working on all these different things to make you a more rounded- I mean, a lot of work on that charisma. <laughs> I, 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 every day I'm doing those charisma push-ups, baby. Oh man. On that topic, you know, just before we get into it, Detsy, you majored in the social sciences, is that right? Remind us yeah, what that's... it was that you studied in school. So uh, for both my undergraduate and my master's degree at the London School of Economics, uh, I mastered in sociology. Yeah, so sociology is a lot about like a lot about the way that we think. Nothing's really set in stone and it's all about the perspective of how we see reality almost in terms of uh, society, societal inter interactions and the way that um, almost almost like common sense is perceived. I feel like you bring a lot of that perspective to your playing magic. Would you say that that mm -hmm. is the case? I'm not sure which way it is. If my socio, if my sociological background uh, influences my my magic background, or maybe I've just been like kind of that kind of person who just wants to see some sort of greater truth. But uh, that is a very common theme for me in almost everything I do. I just have this weird feeling that I just don't want to live a lie, essentially. <laughs> I just want to get as close to the truth as possible, even if it kills me. So it's like, uh, you know, one of those curiosity kill the cat moments. People ask me all the time if I had an opportunity to open Pandora's box, would I do it? Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Like, I need to open it right now, figure out what happens after. I love it. And I think that's one of the reasons your content is so compelling, right? Is that you're like trying weird things and being super unapologetic about it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> For any of you who aren't currently watching Deathsea, I would just go check him out, even if you're not that excited about Limited. It's just a, a singular experience. 
Nowhere else in Magic are you going to see someone running a 40-card deck with five Riptide Turtles in it and just crushing people. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'd also like to stress that this isn't outside of the competitive setting. You're, you are a very competitive person, and you consistently rank extremely well mm, while yeah. experimenting, which I think is... I mean, even if you ask professional Magic players, there are people who will tell you that you just can't do that, which, like... How do you, how is it? And Arjuna says you're unapologetic. I mean, do you, do you ever, is the rank, the rank is probably the side effect, right? Like it, it's, it's kind of the, it's not really the, the objective. Is that true? Yeah, I think that is very much true. Um, oftentimes my rank, to be honest, like some, so, sometimes I'll be messing around and uh, I'll just randomly be in like top 10 or top five mythic or something unlimited, uh, which, which obviously isn't always the case, but um, sometimes that is the case. And the main thing for me about getting high ranks is just having a clickbait title. <laughs> Honestly, that's it. Yes. I don't really care that much about the rank, but. You uh, said it. <laughs> yeah. No, no, no. Completely, completely. And. That's the thing is that I don't care about my rank as much as the viewers care about my rank, mm -hmm. which yep. kind of sucks. It's a, kind of a double-edged sword because I'll get people in, but at the same time, like whenever I start losing, then like my chat is nothing but, oh, what happened to your rank? What happened to your rank? What do you think happened to my rank? The number went up. <laughs> I just lost. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> I lost games of magic. Oh my yeah. God. I think it certainly is interesting because um, it's important to get like the weird stuff out early and just to know exactly how bad a bad card is or to know when to use this card that people seemingly think is unplayable. Right. So uh, in, in Zendikar rising, there's like this card called, uh, called Concerted Defense. Yeah, it's like the Spell Pierce kind of card. It's like a bad Spell Pierce Negate kind of card. Yeah, and um, you basically it's like it counters non-creature spell for a one plus each party member you have for one blue mana. It's a card that's kind of questionable because it's printed in a, in the a same set that also has Negate. Um, but at the same time, I found it actually quite potent in these uh, like blue-white builds. Um, just as long as you have veering party members in the deck, is that in this format, people are just tapping out. You know, like you, you're tapping out for exact mana. This, this format is very much about like on six mana, we're going to cast our kicker card. You know, like it's going to be um, either like a cunning geyser mage or it's going to be uh or, or, or it's going to be like a field research or something. And if you can counter one of those like uh, powerful non-creature spells, then you're in a pretty good spot. But it's obviously not a good card, but you need to recognize like when this is an effect that your deck uh, is potentially interested in. So you need to get those that kind of testing out and not really care much about losing in the beginning. To me, losing is essentially an investment for the future. So you lose and you figure things out. And a lot of my viewers, you know, like, you're welcome. I'm losing so that you have information, you know. So don't complain to me that I'm losing. 
they're like, all right, well, I well, I know so much now from all the science that Desi's in. And honestly, I think that that's just very, uh, very much humanity where it's like we just really take for granted the sort of research and the sort of uh, difficulties that it's taken to reach a certain point. And now we're like, oh, yeah, well, we, well, we have this medicine. We have uh, ibuprofen and just like all this random stuff. And we just never really uh, give it any thought. It's almost like they don't see the process, right? Like I do X, Y, Z, or I do what the mm. checklist says and I should be victorious. Uh, you know, yeah, exactly. Good cards, just play only good cards, just play a certain way. And I the feel process like, is mm-hmm, messy. Exactly. And it's not only that they don't see the process, I feel like, People, a lot of people don't care about the process and they just care about the victory symbol, you know, like the victory symbol. And I know it is expensive, so I can kind of get it from that perspective that, you know, if you win, you get to play more. And maybe that's their relationship with magic. But at the same time, for me, it's the process that is almost exclusively what I care about magic. A lot of times, like I'll draft a deck and I'll conceptualize about it. And in all honesty, I feel like playing out the games kind of detracts from that. (laughs) It's like, I have this beautiful concept here and I'm like visualizing how all these games are going to play out on the play or on the draw. And then actually, actually playing my games is the worst part about that because you don't always get the sort of uh, actualization of it. Yeah, man. I feel that so much. There's, I almost have an, when, when I like really love a deck I've built, I actually have this anxiety to play it because I know if like the first two or three games are me getting mana screwed or something like that, chat's going to start erupting and you need to change this and you should do that. And this deck is garbage. And I'm, oh man, I, I feel that so much, dude. Dude, that's painful, man. Oh man. That's why, like, these days, I actually tell my viewers just straight up that my favorite thing in Magic is actually talking about Magic. Mm-hmm. Playing is probably on the lower end of my list. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because uh, it's like, the good Magic is, like, quite good, but the bad Magic is, like, quite bad, <laughs> I feel. So, it's, uh, it's this very, very strange experience where it's, uh, you don't always get to live the sort of dream that you're imagining. And I think that one of the things that you're getting at here, Deathsea, kind of highlights some of the specific challenges in Zendikar Rising Draft as well. So, like, for example, you were talking about looking at a deck, how it plays on the draw versus how it plays on the play. And from watching your content, I've come to think that there are some cards in this format that you're a lot lower on than you otherwise would be, simply because they just don't play well on the draw. Would you say that's correct? Yeah. mm -hmm. Let's talk about that a little. The card that comes to my mind as a best example of this, kind of like the marquee plays terribly on the draw card, would be a card like a Coom Hellhound. Okay. A card that's doing literally nothing for you if you're blocking. Yep. I'd be interested to hear you just talk about that a little bit more. What are some of the cards that are even whole archetypes that you're lower on in this format simply because they don't play well on the draw? Yeah, so for me, a lot of uh, drafting and probably magic in general is trying to risk assess. So you're trying to manage that degree of risk that you're taking by the cards you play. So the thing is that, you know, a lot of times we look at 
the ceiling of a card. How good can this card be at its best state? And then sometimes we'll look at the floor of a card where it's like, okay, when this card's bad, at least it's like, you know, maybe at least it's a three mana three, three. Whenever we're talking about magic cards in this sense is that we're really just trying to figure out how good is this card. So for example, a card like uh, Crushing Canopy, right? So Crushing Canopy can kill a, for, uh, for two colors in green, you can kill a flyer, artifact, or enchantment at instant speed. The ceiling of this card is, you know, killing their awesome, awesome flyer. You know, there's like the, uh, there's a lot of like good rare flyers in the format that you'll be super happy to Crushing Canopy, or maybe you'll hit like a Rusev Drakes or uh, something along those lines. Now, what's the floor of that card? Is that it's a dead card in your hand and it doesn't hit absolutely anything. So you always need to take these risks into account when you're picking cards, when you're building your deck. Zendikar Rising has a lot of inherent cards that have a high ceiling and a really, really bad low end. Where, as, as you said, like a lot of times these cards are not doing anything when you're on the draw. So most of these landfall cards, actually, uh, especially the ones with like low toughness, are actually not that good in this format if you're not going first. I actually try to stay away from these archetypes for the most part because best of one... So best one is an experience on Magic Arena that is not only already punishing because being on the draw in Magic is already punishing, but there's the hand smoother as well, which essentially amplifies the aggressiveness of being on the play. So realistically, another way you can look at that is that being on the draw is even more bad in best of one. So you really have to be careful in how you build these decks. Best of three is kind of similar. Maybe sometimes you can have some Akum Hellhounds in the sideboard and like Brushfire Elemental, Skyclave Geopede in the sideboard and then actually bring it in when you're in when you're on the play i think that that's a successful strategy as well but um for the most part you really have to just be careful so uh this sort of like red green landfall deck is probably the 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 worst gruel deck in my opinion in the format but it is potent when you're on the when you're on the play which I just want to stop and, and take note of that because that is the marquee theme for that color in the set, right? It's like that yeah. that color combination has been designed to do that thing. And so I just think that it's interesting. And I would agree with you here. It's like my most successful gruel decks in this format have been just kind of a lot more mid-rangey or flexed some kind of weird synergies like wizards randomly or something else that aren't really supposed to be supported in that format or like i've seen you play you know you're kind of like the person who coined gruel control in in zendikar yeah, rising yeah. limited <laughs> <laughs> so let's go into some specifics about that like when let's say you're building a gruel deck what are some of the cards or archetypes that are kind of surprising that people might not initially think about which end up going really well in that so this is kind of a tangent into dual face cards as well. In my opinion, the best dual face cards are actually in green and in red. And partially because the cards that actually allow you to pick up lands in these colors. So in red, you have Pyroclastic Helion. In green, you have um, Stomper. 
I don't remember Stomper's first name. Kazandu Stomper. <laughs> oh my gosh, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, okay, so Kazandu Stomper. I think that both of these cards are also just good magic cards in your deck already, but then they also pick up these game-winning dual face cards that you played at a la- that you played as a land earlier and then now it's a game-winning spell. That's generally the best way to play Gruul in this format, in my opinion. It is a land synergy deck. It's just not necessarily a landfall synergy deck. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And in order to get to that point where you can pick up the lands and stuff like that, you really don't want to have these, these, these landfall creatures that are only attacking, right? So you want to be looking more for uh, creatures that can just trade off well. Um, one of the cards that I really like is Draga Visionary. Four mana, three, two, green elf wizard. And when you play her, she, she draws a card. So a really potent card in just being able to get to that late game while trading off resources uh, earlier on. A much better blocker, a card that you're much happier to block with than, say, one of your aggressive creatures that simply go one for one. Yeah, one of the kind of under maybe underexplored or, or misunderstood things about cards like this, or I think Into the Royal is another good example, is that these are cards that basically set you up to keep hitting your land drops. So I think that that's one of the things that people will often miss when they look at a card like this. They'll they'll look at a 3-2 a for 4 that draws a card, and they'll think, ah, eh, well, it's somewhat of an unimpressive body, but it does get me some card advantage. For me, when I'm looking at that card... of that card is like, I play this on turn four so that I can play my land drop on turn five. And I think that that really enables a lot of what these like blue green and red green decks are trying to do, which is kind of like you were saying, is to put out more lands than your opponent and cast these big stompy creatures and also, you know, have some extra lands to work with so that you can pick, pick up your DFCs and actually try to cast them. You know, being able to pick up your Act of Treason double-faced land and then actually be able to cast it on the following turn is like a really potent thing. Or, or being able to cast your Akum Warrior, which I think is one of the better DFCs in the format. I see those wheeling way too often, man. So I'd like to talk about red, actually, because I know that you've been a huge champion of red in this format. I think that you've said on stream that red is your favorite color. In, in the Zendikar Rising Limited format. Would you say that that's true? Yes, I would say that that's true. Red is the red is a color that I would choose to be in every time if I could. So take us through that. What are the reasons that you're excited to play red in the format? So I think red is actually very good at both attacking and blocking. It's good at being offensive and defensive. Uh, Royal Eruption, probably being the best uh, common in the format, you know, um, kind of like a bad lightning strike with kicker, but uh, in this format, it really overperforms. And uh, once again, Pyroclastic Helion, one of the cards that really stand out to me, just being able to pick up your Kazos Fury or being able to pick your, your Song Mad Treachery, uh, or even like a Spike Field Hazard, a lot of times even has a late game implications. So, red has been a really, really sweet color for me. Uh, there's a lot of the cards that I really, really like. Even like a Fissure Wizard, for example, is a card that helps smooth out your draws. Uh, sometimes if you're in red-black, you have some sweet combos with reanimation stuff. 
But uh, yeah, for the most part, I really like how red pairs with all of the other colors in the format. Uh, whereas like some of the other colors are very strong as well, but the color combinations are a little bit more awkward. You just won't always be able to get a nice deck uh, when the two colors are open because um, you might just because the cards don't work as well together, I suppose. Yeah, I think I would agree with you. There's also just some, there's some funny things about red in this format that I think are a little, they're not typical of red in most sets. So for example, you have a surprising number of high toughness creatures in red. So like the Hellion being a good example, does the two drop one three that you can pump? Mm. You've also got the, the two three warrior that becomes a four three at three mana. And also even just like the Spitfire Legac with, with four toughness. So I think that that's Something that's a little bit, again, like people aren't thinking about that as much, but you've got these surprisingly chonky red creatures that, as you said, do a pretty good job of blocking. There's also just some really nice, sweet little synergies, like you'll pick up one or two Cyndaclasms in your draft, which is another card I think is kind of criminally underdrafted. Mm -hmm. And you'll have these situations where you're looking down at your board and you're like, I have a 1-3, I have a 2-3, I have a 3-4. And my opponent playing, you know, Ozov has like a bunch of two ones and two twos and, and random stuff. Well, like, you know, my blue opponent has a bunch of drakes and three two wizards and stuff like that. And you can just cast this like one-sided instant speed board wipe for three mana. So I think that there are some subtleties like that in the red color, which aren't immediately apparent, but which when you start to play the games, you realize like, wow, these cards just play really, really nicely together. And overall, the colors in this format uh, actually do feel quite balanced. For me, balance is not the uh, be-all, end-all. Um, I don't think that formats actually necessarily have to be balanced. But uh, for this format, the colors are relatively balanced. I think that white is a little bit on the weak side. But for the most part, uh, all of the color combinations, they have their appeal. It makes it pretty interesting because for this format, every single color combination actually can do so many different things. So for me, Zendikar Rising has actually been the most complex drafting portion format for a long time. I think that the last time I felt that a draft uh, format was this complex was actually War of the Spark. And this one might even be more complex than that. Just because you have so many different lanes, you have to figure out if you're a tribal deck. You need to figure out if you're a party deck. Maybe you're like 50% tribal. You know, maybe you're like a wizard deck, but then you have like other party creatures in there slotted in and some party payoffs and synergies. Sometimes you're just a deck of unemployed creatures that just have no job at all. And they're, and they're just like all random beasts and bats and snakes and stuff like that, which is generally like what the black green archetype is. So you just have so many different lanes and you're, and you need to figure out uh, if your deck wants like these dual face cards and you need to find ways to pick them up. And honestly, that's kind of the main appeal for me for the format is that the drafting experience is so robust. I will say that as time goes on, the actual playing part of it, I think that basically at this point now, about a month and a half in, I think, it has been a month and a half already since uh, Zenikar has come out. 
it's it's almost a month for arena release oh really <laughs> it does oh my it does feel like forever though <laughs> if we lived a lifetime of omnath between then and, <laughs> and, uh, and... yeah so a month into the format i feel like people are now understanding how many lands to run roughly understanding when to when to play like a uh, dual face card over a land uh, understanding the sort of synergistic approach to the format and building a, a, a coherent deck, which honestly, I think that people took a long time to figure out because of the complexity of the draft format. So to me, Zendikar Rising Now is actually an incredibly superior drafting format, but in terms of the play, it has diminished somewhat for me. That's really interesting. It's a, it's a cool distinction to make. And I do think that a lot of your most diehard drafters will tell you that the most exciting part of draft is actually the drafting portion, right? You have these people like Ben Stark who want to do like a drafting pro tour where everyone just drafts and then a panel of judges examines their deck afterwards and decides who wins. And then they just go on to the next draft. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Ah, the future of limited. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Future of magic, I hope. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, I don't know if it's a derail, but I, I was hoping I was hoping with Desi here that we would have a minute to talk about competitive magic and drafting. Like, sure. do you think that there's a way to make limited a compelling thing for competitive for like whatever their vision is of esports? Because it's pretty much since Worlds, which had a drafting portion, there hasn't been limited involved in competitive magic at all uh, since mm-hmm. then. And that seems to be what they want to stick to. And that definitely wasn't the way it was for many years. Do you think we can get it back? Yeah, so I think that one of the main reasons that Magic Arena is so constructed, aka standard-focused, is that it's very easy for a viewer to come in and be like, oh, this is a vampire deck, right? This deck is trying to play black-white vampires and trying to put counters and stuff and attack your opponent to death. Okay, and then that person can then go over to Magic Arena or whatever and then basically start constructing that same deck. There's a very easy, like, A, B, C kind of um, roadmap to how to get into the format, how to start playing Magic. Now, the thing about Limited, and this has been traditionally the main reason why I think that Limited uh, has been kind of confusing, maybe for a newer player, is that you start watching people play and like they're like picking cards and stuff like that and you don't know what any of the cards do and then they build a deck that you don't really know like what's in their deck this is kind of how it used to be where it's like it was really hard to put up information about people's deck because people would register the decks in paper and then you would have to have like an actual intern or like employee you know typing in the cards putting up all the putting up the cards image by image and for me, a lot of that is very clunky. So having these limited tournaments and stuff, you couldn't really provide all of the information that you would wish to provide to the viewers so that they understand kind of what's going on um, in addition to the process, like uh, in addition to, make, to kind of explaining what drafting is. So I think that for me, um, the main key to this will be Magic Arena, 
which uh, honestly, I'm kind of terrified after saying that. <laughs> but you really want a simple way to basically export the deck list, right? So like you draft, you do your draft on Magic Arena, you export that draft list, the, the deck list, and, e- and you can even go back and have uh, a replay of the draft at that table. And I think that you really need to find ways to facilitate that sort of drafting experience. Um, and I think that some sort of online platform will be able to do that well. You know, back in the day, we used to have a camera over someone's shoulder, right? Like while they're drafting and, and it's like, okay, well, this is like a terrible viewing experience. <laughs> this is actually <laughs> just the worst thing ever. I called it the and parrot cam. The parrot cam, yeah. Yeah. And so in addition to some of those informational issues, you know, trying to get information to the viewers, I think that you just really need to sell limited as a uh, competitive format. So what I would do, for example, is I would create, you know, kind of what we're talking about before is that, well, I would create some sort of marketing perspective where it's like, okay, well, limited is you just get in there with three booster packs and then, and the, and it's like a battle royale. I think that you can create like really, really cool visuals for that and explain very simply to viewers in like 20 seconds exactly what a booster draft is. And from that point on, it's like, oh, well, everybody understands what drafting is. Yep. It's not like, hey, what's draft? Because I personally get a lot of viewers and I'm sure that you do too, CGB, that they come in and they're like, what's a draft? In my opinion, Wizards hasn't even done a great job at explaining what a draft is. So that's kind of my perspective. Yeah, I, there's definitely a lot that they, I think, could do to get people into the process. But Arena does hold some sweet keys to replayability. I just, I don't know why there wasn't, there, there was an event, right, where you could take the standard decks from Worlds and play mm-hmm. them, right? Why isn't there an event to recreate a seat at Worlds at the draft table? True. Like you could play a a world's draft. I could play it from Paulo Vito Damadroza's seat. How freaking cool would that be? Or or you could just do the decks. You could just build the decks and play them against the other decks from it. But I think the drafting part sounds way more appealing. And that's as somebody who who doesn't even enjoy the (laughs) limited. So like Uh, I would try that. Dude, imagine being in Tar Alf's Zeverin seat and not taking the Dream Troller in that world's draft. Ooh. That's that's an experience I would pay money to, to be in his seat. <laughs> you know what I mean? So one of the things, and this is maybe a little bit overcritical for uh, the scope of the podcast, but a big part of me always feels like the perspective from, uh, from Magic the Gathering is that magic is just too big to fail. Where it's like, oh yeah, well, we're magic. We don't need to do like actual marketing or anything. You know, like we just make the stuff and people are going to buy it. That's it. You know, like Magic Arena, it's going to be, all right, we, we're going to introduce the formats. No one's going to know about the formats, but they're going to play it. You know, like they're going to find it somehow. They're getting a little bit better at that, I think, where it's like now they actually are like sending out emails and like, hey, there's uh, this new, you know, this format's back or something like that. But before... The only time that people would ever know that a format is actually back on Magic Arena to draft is they would find it through my stream. You know, they'd be like, oh, I didn't even know this format was back and I play Magic Arena every day. I'm playing this other format right now. And it's and a lot of times it's like tucked away. It's tucked Uh away either in like in like the toggle tab or it's tucked away in like the 
in like the play button on the side. Yeah. Yep. The play blade, man. That I, I was going to say, if you're about to say that they found it through the play blade, I'm going to be like, no, they didn't. Nobody. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody. So the way that you said on stream was perfect because I was just looking at Twitter and Voxy said, I'm playing, I think it was uh, throne of Eldraine draft. And uh, Theros, I think Theros draft and, and alias replies. Oh, I didn't even know that was live. I'm going live. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's so funny. Right. Because the thing yeah. is like, like, like we're full-time content creators. Yep. And the thing is that it's, it's got to tell you something when even we don't know what's going on. It's like, uh, I was talking to Raphael Levy, uh, yesterday and I was like, I was like, yeah, uh, all 32 players in the MPL. Right. And then, and then Raph goes, oh yeah, I think there's a, I think there's like 20, 28 or 24 now. See, I, I don't remember. I don't even know how many players in the 24. Okay. I don't know what the MPL is. I don't know anything about the MPL. I don't know how many players are in there. I, I know Raph's in there. I don't know who else is in there. Anyways. I probably know too much about it because I covered it for Tempo Storm <laughs> oh, for a year, for its inaugural I see. year. But that's the only reason I know. <laughs> yeah. So that's so that's what I'm saying is like Wizards just feels like they're too big to fail. Right? It's like nobody knows what anything is, when anything's happening. And at the same time, Wizards is still like, oh, okay, well, <laughs> you know, well, <laughs> their loss, they should know. Uh, they're going to figure it out. You know, maybe they can find it after digging through our website for like two or three hours or something. I don't know. Yeah. They're, I mean, trust me, you're not being too critical for the scope of the podcast. That's we, we kind of <laughs> come together and bring the thunder when necessary. And okay. I, I agree completely that wizards, I think has stopped selling. Well, I don't even know if they know what it is they sell. I think that their expertise right now is getting money out of people who already know their game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I and eventually that that doesn't last forever. So that at some point, and I hope it's in the works. I, I'm sure that they're not oblivious to this. I'm, they have smart people there, but mm-hmm. they need to figure out how to sell magic to people who don't know everything about the last twenty years of magic. True. Yeah. Yeah, especially because games like Legends of Terra are really bringing it. They're like making a client that's easy to get into, that performs well, that gives you a lot of rewards, that's like very newbie friendly. Yeah. So, and I mean, Hearthstone's been doing a really good job of it for years as well. So yeah, I, I totally agree. If Magic wants to compete in the long run, it's going to have to get so much better about that. I mean, can you imagine? You've never heard of Magic before. You're like, you know, you enjoy tabletop gaming. You've played some Settlers of Catan or whatever. And you download the Magic Arena client and you play through that, frankly, kind of laughable intro (laughs) intro sequence. (laughs) And then, like, you play your first game on the ladder and you just get freaking demolished. Someone goes off with their Omnath or whatever. I mean, honestly, I'd be like, I can't handle this game. I'm going back to Farmville or whatever it was that I was playing before. Like, I just, I can't do it. I still feel that way sometimes. I, I go into Magic and I play a couple of games on the ladder and I'm just like, what is this game? I'm, I'm not going to play anymore today. So as a new player, I can't even imagine what that feeling must be like of just overwhelm, confusion, menu confusion, economy confusion, game play yeah. mechanics confusion it's just such and then a after lot. all of that af- a- after that loss the game client will ask you did you have fun smiley <laughs> face sad face smiley face yeah honestly i think that's why streaming and content 
creation is probably more essential than it ever was because mm. like you are the gateway for many people to figuring to making heads or tails out of this insane world that has been built uh for everybody so uh it's it's just it's more important than ever and it's even hard for us to even know what's going on i know more about how to get into competitive Shadowverse than I do about Magic the Gathering. And I probably play, <laughs> I probably play like two hours of Shadowverse a month and about, a, I don't know how many hours of Magic. It's my, it's my daily waking and going to bed thoughts are Magic. And I still don't know how I would go about getting to the MPL. Like, oh my goodness, yeah. Yeah, crazy. Indeed. It's, it's an interesting place that we find ourselves. I mean, to be honest... One of the reasons, you know, we're even having this conversation right now is that the Zendikar Rising draft has been kind of a saving grace for me because yeah. otherwise it would have been very, very difficult for me to motivate to to play Magic during this last month or so. So having said all of the things that we've said so far here, and, and I definitely agree with everything that's been said, I do think that the these limited formats have been pretty deep and pretty compelling over the last couple of years, and I definitely you know, want to give them some props for that because it's really important to have other ways to play Magic. I did want to get back to the Zendikar Rising draft just a little bit more before we close up here because, you know, I, I want for our listeners to be able to take away some concrete tips to crush the opposition and get ahead. Mm -hmm. One of the things I wanted to discuss with you a little bit more, Deathsy, was conceptually, because I think a lot of people can listen to limited resources or Lords of Limited or whatever, and like get the you know, the breakdown on like Rakdos Party is is a good archetype. Mm -hmm. Blue Red Wizards is a good archetype. Blue Green Kicker is a good archetype. So I think that's kind of the baseline level of the format. And I think that there are a lot of different resources people can go to to get that kind of information. What I'm really excited to talk with you about, Deathsea, is just some of the broader conceptual ideas that I think people might be missing in a format like this. So sure. mm -hmm. one of the things I've heard you talk about a lot is how underwhelming a decent amount of the removal in this format has been to you mm -hmm. and how there's like a really deep kind of analysis that you're making on mana investment and tempo when you approach removal in this format. So because removal spells are often pack one, pick two kind of cards, sometimes even first pickable cards, oftentimes the, the cards that people really look out for in, the, you know, in their picks to try to fill out their deck, I think it's a really important place to, to be thinking about value and power. So can you speak to us a little bit on the removal in the format and, and what your concept is of it right now? Yeah, so most of the removal in the format is actually quite bad. The stat lines don't really line up that well, especially when you take rares into account as well. A lot of the good rares are going to have like four toughness and they're going to be quite difficult for most colors to deal with outside of black. And so one of the great examples in this format is a lot of, a lot of times people have played uh, versus a Ruin Crab, right? Ruin Crab, one mana, zero, three, uh, landfall, your opponent mills three cards. And it's incredibly frustrating because if you look at the vast majority of the removal, you have to spend like five, like you either have to spend a premium removal on it, like premium cheap removal on it, or you have to spend like five mana to kill that. 
And it's incredibly awkward, honestly. So no matter if you spend two mana removal or three mana removal or five mana removal to kill the Ruin Crab, which is generally a must-kill threat, you're still going to be losing out on some front. So kind of a weird thing about the format. I do feel like certain cards, uh, Ruin Crab and also the black-blue gold card, Soaring Thought Thief, they're just a little bit too well-statted and do a little bit too much early on in this format. Um, I'd be a little bit happier if they were like maybe rares or maybe like just delete ruin crab or something. Yeah. So anyways, like the removal's not good. I think that one of the main things that you want to try to do in this format, instead of going one for one, just because in general, one for oneing is just not very good is that you want to try to find ways to, uh, to get card advantage on your opponent. So one of the main draws into red in terms of the uncommons for me, is Thundering Spark Mage. So this is a four mana 2-2 two, two that will deal, da- enters the battlefield, deals damage equal to party. So the amount of party you have. So you can develop a creature while killing one of their creatures. Um, same thing in this format with like Drana Silencer. It's a, it's a, it's a six mana black 3-2 that, that does a similar thing. I wanted to tangent on that card a little bit because I know it's like <laughs> one of Deathsea's pet cards that a lot of other people yeah. think is basically unplayable. I think one of the reasons people are kind of down on it is that it doesn't compare favorably to Blight Breath Catablepus, which is the last time we had an effect like that. The Catablepus was consistently, you know, nugging for like four or five or even more. Whereas I think that the, the Silencer is more often a one or a two kind of a hit. So um, can you talk with us briefly about like how highly do you take this card and how much setup do you do before you consider running it in your deck? Yeah, so I think that this kind of goes back to our initial conversation on, on basically getting rid of that ego in Magic, where it's obviously the Draenor Silencer is a worse version of the Blight Breath Catabolibus in Theros, but they are both different formats. And also, I would say that Draenor Silencer is uh, respectively better in Zenikar than Blight Breath was in Theros. So what I mean by that is that Theros was a format that stalled out like crazy. So you had incredible board stalls where oftentimes you play a Blight Breath Catabolibus and the board is still stalled and nothing changes. <laughs> so, uh, in this format, however, is a lot more, um, it's a lot more board centric and also like combat centric. So even like controlling decks are going to try to figure out, uh, w- when they can make attacks, when they, uh, and when they should block. So in this format, Drana silencer is actually a lot better because the thing is that, uh, the creatures in the board actually just matter more. Now it's not a great card. But if you are a party deck, and especially if you have a if you have like Thwart the Grave, it gets a lot better. Things that, that you're looking for, Fissure Wizard, a card that helps you get up to six mana. You're looking for cards like Thwart the Grave or Blood Beckoning to actually like get repeated value off of these effects as well and try to keep that party type up. And in general, it should kind of be your top end. Again, not the most exciting card, but it's a card that's better than most people do give it credit for. Yeah, and I appreciate those kind of takes because I think that that's exactly the kind of card where it's easy to just get blind to it, right? You just, you draft enough and eventually you don't even see it anymore. 
you know you're like oh that's just that 15th pick that automatically gets selected at the end of a pack for me you know because it's just not on your radar and i totally agree that i think getting edges in limited formats especially after month one cards like dranith silencer are like the linchpin of that you don't get better at limited by realizing that a bomb rare is good sure 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 you know you're just like look i pick that whenever it's in my colors sometimes i divert my color because i got a chance to pick it that's about as good as you're going to get with those cards they're just good play them and you win kind of a thing right Mm -hmm. but i think where you really get your edge in limited formats is saying you know what janet silence is better than i thought it was and i'm going to start taking it a little bit more highly and i'm actually going to consider it a build around in my deck sure because then you know you're like ensuring that card number 23 is also a good card in your deck right so you're like when i don't draw my life linking rogue flyer i still have game because all of the cards in my deck theoretically are able to do something for me yeah so a lot about drafting for me is just trying to draft the best deck possible for your seat and also building the best deck possible so outside of that Honestly, everything else is out, is out of your control. <laughs> you can't really do much else outside of that, but play well, I guess. Essentially, that should be the goal. It's like, okay, well, how well can I draft my seat? How well can I build my deck? And then after that, it's uh, it's uh, smooth sailing from there. So let me ask you, what are some other cards like that? Maybe this is kind of a hard question to answer on the spot, mm-hmm. but are there some other like random commons or uncommons that you think are underrated or that you feel like you have been having success with success with when other people haven't? Hmm. I feel like negate is actually so negate in blue has actually been uh, <laughs> a pretty good role player, and it only really works if you have other things to do at instant speed. Uh, you like you can't be a tap out deck. And then just have a random negate in there. It doesn't really work like that. But if you're a deck that can play instant speed, maybe you have some living tempest to flash in. Maybe you have like into the royals, and uh, you can also hold a big uh, a negate at the same time. I think that it's actually quite good in this format. This format, the non-creature stuff in general is kind of big and clunky. So I actually kind of like negate, and to some extent, uh, the concerted defense. So one of the consistent themes that I'm hearing you from here is hearing from you is that efficiency is really important in this format. I remember I was watching Andrea Mangucci streaming this limited format, and he said something that really stuck with me, which was um, he was talking about exquisite spellcraft. It's the the five mana deal for he was uh, synchronized spellcraft. Synchronized yeah. spellcraft. That's the one. And he was saying that. He was like, you know, this card's just too expensive. I wouldn't run more than one of these in mm-hmm. most of my decks in this format. And I totally agreed with him. And I've noticed that I've gotten in this spot a lot in this format where I'll have like, yeah, the five mana deal for and the five mana draw three, you know, like I'll, I'll kind of have all these clunky expensive cards in my hand. And I'm really struggling to feel like I have a good window to cast any of them. Yep. Sometimes you dealing four to a creature and taking your entire turn is just not good enough in this format. You know, yeah. sometimes like drawing three cards and having that be your whole turn, it's just not good enough. So it's really interesting how I think you would probably agree with me on this that the 
costly plunder uh, or something it's like it's like skyclave plunder skyclave or something plunder, like that yeah exactly like has gone down in my estimation whereas mm -hmm. the uh, the kicker divination has gone up in my estimation yep yep mm -hmm. so it to me i think part of navigating this format is identifying which expensive cards are worth it and which ones aren't mm -hmm. and one of the reasons i like the kicker cards so much is that I think that they're some of the best expensive cards in the set because they don't need to be expensive. True, yes. I think for for our listeners who are looking for some sort of tangible uh, takeaway on how to actually draft this format that you might not hear anywhere else is my biggest advice. Uh, so it's a two-part advice. Firstly, when you're drafting, try to find your first color. You want to be cutting your first color. You want to be finding that first color. And what this does is that it allows you to be flexible in what your second color is. So sometimes maybe in pack two, you'll open up like a rare that you really want to play that, uh, you know, maybe you're already red and you open a Phylath, for example. Definitely the most important thing that you can do. And honestly, a lot of draft formats is to just try to stick to one color first, like find that one color. Secondly is try to not only look at which colors are open, but how well the cards work together. So a lot of times maybe you'll have a, maybe red and white will both be open in your seat, but the cards actually don't work together. So just think about how these cards play out together and uh, that's going to help you a lot in Xanarchar Rising. It's a really good point. One of the biggest pitfalls I've run into in this format in particular is that I'll see like a lot of good blue commons going around the table mm -hmm. and I'll be like, oh, okay, yeah, blue's open. That sounds good. You know, like I'll get a couple rabid bites and some kind of rando green commons that seem pretty good. And I'll be like, okay, cool. I'm going to move into like a blue green kicker deck. And at the end of the draft, I just have a very mediocre pile of cards with no mm -hmm. real payoffs and like no okay. good uncommons or rares. And it's not the worst place to be because a lot of those cards are just fairly solid. It's like your deck's not going to be embarrassing, but it's, I kind of feel like I got duped into like, just because the card pool could support me picking up a bunch of good blue commons, that doesn't really matter because the cards that I picked didn't end up doing very much. Mm -hmm. So that that's an archetype in particular I've found myself ending up in a lot and kind of afterwards regretting my life's choices because I was doing that level one play of, oh, these cards are pretty good. This is the best common in the pack. That You know, sure. like, I'm, cons I'm getting fed this color, this feels good, and then just realizing that I wasn't actually building a strong deck while I was doing that. Yeah, so that is going to be the experience of probably the vast majority of people in this format because the thing is that every color combination can be played in probably, I would say, like two to five different ways. So realistically, it's your job to try to identify what exactly your deck is trying to do and trying to find, is trying to not only find, but also be flexible in changing that narrative. I love it. So let's talk about a few cards that people should pick highly because they fit into a lot of different archetypes. Um, there's some uncommons that come to my mind that I think should be top of the pack, bomb level cards to pick. Roost of Drakes being the first and foremost. This card like is just good in almost any blue deck, 
I would be surprised, hard pressed to find any blue deck that I wouldn't want to run this card in. Thwart the Grave, same in black. I would probably even run that card in a deck with no party members whatsoever, just because it's <laughs> so good. Yeah, or like just a few party members. Yeah, well. exactly. Um, another card that I have found that you can put into a surprisingly large number of decks in the format is a Relic Amulet. I know this is one of your pet cards here. Yep. You can have a green deck which is running like Reclaim the Wastes, Rapid Bite, that two mana sorcery that searches up a creature out of your deck. You can like you can look at your green deck by the end of the draft and realize that just in the color green you had like ten ways to trigger your relic amulet. So mm -hmm. I think a lot of people think that this is a blue-red build around, and I think it's just a fantastic build around outside of maybe like clerics or warriors or like a super creature dense deck mm -hmm. so that's another example of a card that i think you can usually feel confident picking that up knowing that it's just going to give you a lot of flexibility yeah can you name some other cards you can think of that are just you know what this card is just really solid to pick up and it's going to help me no matter which direction i end up going in mm, that is a great question um i don't know if there are I, I don't know to me if there are any just uh, one-size-fits-all cards like that in this format for me, but um, I will say that Seagate Colossus, which is a 7-mana seven 7-5 seven at common, it gets uh, one cheaper for every party member you have. That card is actually a lot more playable than people give it credit for. It is a card that should be making the vast, major the vast majority of uh, party decks, at least the first copy of it. So uh, I think that this is one that's quite flexible that, that you can speculate on early if it's a relatively weak pack. And it's actually a very, very strong role player in, uh, in any of these party board-centric decks. So let's just synthesize a few of the things we've talked about here. Number one, red is a very strong color. And my personal opinion, still really underdrafted. I see a lot of these red DFCs going really late, like Kazul's yep. Fury. That card is very good. <laughs> it's it's very, very, very good. good. Song Mad Treachery, also a very, very good card. You just shouldn't be passing these cards as much as you maybe are. Next thing is efficiency is hyper important in this format. Consider taking cheaper, more flexible cards instead of bigger, more expensive cards. And understand that a lot of the best expensive cards are actually the ones that can be cheaper in some way. So like Thwart the Grave is a great example of Seagate Colossus, great example. Rule number three from Deathsea, think really carefully about your removal and think really carefully about how much mana you want to spend on it and think really carefully about, you know, how much you need to prioritize it in terms of making your deck good. Rule number four, pick a really strong color, try to get like one color really dialed in and try to stay open as to how you can supplement that color. I think a lot of people in draft think I'm drafting a two color deck, but when you get to the end of the draft, you realize I drafted a white deck with like a heavy black splash. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Can you just talk to us about that for just a moment? I feel like this is another thing I've learned from you specifically is that you'll often be like, yeah, this is a white deck with eight red cards in it. Uh -huh. is, is that something that you find yourself doing a lot? Yeah, so part of the sort of uh, risk mitigation and risk assessing is uh, trying to figure out how to not put too, too much of a strain on your mana base. 
constructed players will kind of understand this a little bit better probably like when you're building your mana and just understanding when you can have certain certain uh certain mana and the cost of having like sh- like shock lands and dual lands in your two or three color deck now in limited a lot of times people will not understand why when you're running six planes in your deck you, you don't really want to run a white one drop right on oh, the binding yeah, exactly. When Nahiri's binding, that's like that's like double white. So you just really want to give your deck the best chances of winning. And a lot of times it's about how smooth you can make your deck. And that's going to be trying to mitigate the bad draws, trying to mitigate the awkwardness of the colors in your deck. So you always have to take into account, when can I cast this card? How many sources should I run? And essentially how the deck plays out in the end. And then again, you know, just wanted to harken back to what Deathsy was saying about this format in particular, but in drafting in general, you just really have to get yourself out of the mindset of this card is good, that card is bad, and more towards what is feeding my plan, what's making the cards I've already picked better, which is the reason that you might find yourself picking negate instead of Nahiri's binding when one just seems like objectively a much stronger card in limited than the other. So that that's something I'm really taking away from our conversation here. Another one I forgot that we mentioned was um, think about how your deck plays on the draw and consider heavily whether you can afford to build a deck that has multiple cards in it that don't play very well on the draw or from behind. So consider that. Is there anything else that you want to tell our listeners before we head out here, Deathsea? Yep. If you want to get better at Constructed, watch Cover Go Blue. <laughs> if you want to get better at Limited, watch Desi. As simple as that. There you go. We got all the bases covered. So to that note, Desi, people can find you on twitch.tv forward slash Desi. Are there any other places, resources, things that you offer that people can go and plug into? Ooh, ooh, yep. ooh, ooh. While oh, he prepares uh-huh. for that, while he prepares for that, I'm gonna do him. <laughs> I'm gonna do something for him. So, your tier list for limited is almost a beloved resource for your community, and I think you put a lot of work into it. You can tell that there's experience and experimentation behind it. Instead of I read the card, I gave it a grade, and I used it. Uh, I know from being on the inside that it was a major draw for Tempo Storm when they were interested Mm -hmm. in you, when they became interested in you. Mm -hmm. And it was an inspiration for what I tried to do with my crafting guides for new sets for standard. So uh, like that was a big deal for me because I think it is a step above a lot of what I see in terms of content. So I think it's underappreciated. And if people don't know you, I would suggest the first thing that they do once they go to your Twitch page or your Twitter is check your tier list because I think it's a step above the typical limited content and I wanted to make sure that got out there. Yeah, thank you so much, CGB. So, yeah, so for those of you who don't know, uh, Cover Go Blue has been killing it on Twitch, absolutely killing it. Like, I'm the small guy, you know what I mean? So uh, I really do look up to you. So my tier list, a lot of blood and swag goes into that. Uh, you know, throughout a format, there will probably be like six or seven big iterations of the change. And by the end of the format, it's, it is a, almost a perfected science to where I like my cards and how I evaluate my cards. 
So uh, if, if you check out deathsea.com, you will find out all of my tier lists there. And uh, it's all of the formats that have ever been in Magic Arena. So you go all the way back to like uh, Ixlon even. So um, that's a free resource to offer uh, as well on uh, twitch.tv slash deathsea. That's D-E-A-T-H-S-I-E. Uh, my VODs are available for free. Um, so you can go and check out the drafts and stuff. That is going to be my biggest uh, recommendation for anyone who wants to get a jump start at leveling up your draft game. And I think that's a really good thing to highlight right now, uh, especially your tier list and whatnot, because we're getting to that point in the season where we're going to start rotating through a bunch of old sets and quick draft. Yep. So go check them out. That that really is. That's where I would start. You know, if I was like, oh, I've never played this Eldraine format before. <laughs> Spoiler alert, if you haven't played Eldraine, get used to more milling because that's, that's going to be <laughs> happening at a certain portion of the time. But anyway, yeah, definitely go go check out those tier lists. Couldn't agree more with CGB there. One of the things I like about watching your stream, Deathsea, is the talk, right? Like you were saying that talking about the game is one of your the things that you like doing the best. And that's really what I get from your stream is hearing your opinions on things more than like anything else is just seeing you be like, no, I'm not going to pick this card here because, you know, X, Y, and Z reason. Mm -hmm. And also I appreciate on your stream how people will ask you really boring questions and you'll just be like, Nah, like I'm not. I'm not even going there. You know, like they'll be like, <laughs> you know, they'll be like, Deathsea, why didn't you pick so and so card? And you're like, No, you tell me why I was supposed to pick that card, and then uh -huh. we can have an interesting conversation about it. I really like that. It's just like that commitment to excellence. I want to engage in dialogue that makes both of us better at magic. I mean, we have that as well as uh, just me ranting about like random, random <laughs> off-topic magic stuff. Like the way I generally look at it is that I'm a high-level magic stream in the background, but in the foreground, I'm just a just chatting streamer. And you can also see Deathsea on a bunch of other cool streams as well. He's moonlighting on a bunch of other streams from friends of his in Korea, for example. Mm. So if you want more and more and more Deathsea, then definitely, you know, check out his streams to learn where else he's going to be. Oh, man. Yeah. Next week, I think uh, next week I've been invited to do a it's like a, a K-pop training camp. So that's going to be streamed. And I am scared out of my mind. Uh, but the but the teachers are are some of my friends here and they're like uh, ex K-pop idols and stuff. So. <laughs> Sounds amazing. You you get to be the student instead of the teacher. Yep, exactly. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week's Arena Craft podcast. Thank you for listening. I hope you got a lot out of this. I certainly did. You can find Arena Craft on most places. We're on Spotify. We're on YouTube. We're on iTunes, Stitcher, most podcast platforms. If you can't find us on one, let us know because we want to be everywhere. You can find Covert Go Blue on his, like Desi was saying, very, very successful blowing up Twitch stream, Covert Go Blue forward slash, I mean, <laughs> twitch.tv forward slash Covert Go Blue. Soon it will be Covert Go Blue <laughs> yeah, slash twitch.tv. <laughs> Um, over. <laughs> and uh, of course he does that Monday through Thursday 4pm Eastern Ooh, I'd like to announce something quickly on your outro this Thursday my channel on Twitch CGB 
versus the one, the only, Mistman. Oh, damn. (laughs) The showdown. The showdown. (laughs) Well done. The elusive Mistman. I love it. Indeed. I couldn't be happier. Notable control mage as well. I I hope you guys will have some fun stuff lined up. The ultimate war of the Gandalfs. (laughs) Indeed. You can also find Kovac Go Blue's content on YouTube. He's absolutely killing it there as well. All right. Thank you so much, both of you gentlemen. I wish you the best of luck in the arena in this coming week. Goodbye.